I play baseball in college. You can look up here and see a picture of what I looked like back in the day. I realize that picture looks like it comes from 1880. That's actually 1980. I guess we were still taking black and white pictures back then or something. But I, I went to college at a school near Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we were headed to Nashville, Tennessee to play a team. And um, it was rumored that they had a pitcher who was a major league prospect. He could apparently throw the ball 90-some miles per hour. So on the two-and-a-half-hour van ride to the game, I began to think about what it would be like to go up against this guy, and I began to dream. Dream about getting a hit off of him. I mean, this guy's a major league prospect, then someday, if he's on TV and I get a hit, I can say, hey, see that guy there? I got a hit off of him when I was in college. Or what if I even got a home run off of him? That'd be something to tell the grandkids about, right? Well, we got there and we played the game. And uh, let me just say that that dream was just a dream. <laughs> I think I faced him three times. He struck me out three times. The first time, I don't even... I don't even think I went down swinging. By the third time he struck me out, I was swinging, but I think I was so late that they were throwing the ball from the catcher back to the pitcher by the time I had swung, something like that. Now, I learned something that day. I was out of my league, way out of my league. And to think that I actually thought I might be able to get a hit against this guy. Now, maybe some of you have been there. Maybe it wasn't with athletics. Maybe you had like the lead role in your high school musical. And uh, so you dreamed about being on Broadway one day. And so when you got to college, you decided to audition for the musical there. And you did, only to find out that the person who got the lead role could sing like Carrie Underwood and could act like Jennifer Lawrence. And she had a cold the day of the auditions or something like that. Or maybe you dreamed about going to Harvard. I mean, you made good grades in high school. You were near the top of your class. You had really good SAT scores, only to find out the people who get into Harvard, some of them actually have perfect SAT scores. Elite. That's a word we use to describe major leaguers, Academy, Tony Award winners, and Harvard alums. Now sometimes when we are around people who seem elite, we realize that we are out of our league. And it can make us feel small, stupid, insignificant. It can make us want to give up. What's the point in even trying when we're around people like that? In the first century, there was a religious group of people who were the elite. They were the unchallenged superstars of spirituality. I mean, they had gone to heights with their religion that other people could only dream about. So how did that make the average person feel? Like they couldn't measure up. Like they didn't have a chance like, there was no point in even trying because there were so many hoops to jump through, they couldn't get through all the hoops. And so when it came to their own personal relationship with God, they thought, thoughts like, there's no point in me even trying. 
I cannot measure up. I am out of my league with these religious leaders. And these religious leaders, uh, these men, they didn't mind talking a little trash about how much better they were than you, how much more elite they were than you. They would parade around in public and show off. They prayed in public. They gave their financial gifts in public. They dressed the part. They said the right things. They looked down on people who did not. Essentially, what they communicated to ordinary people like you and to me was this. You will never attain my level of spirituality. You are out of your league. Enter Jesus. He's 30 years old. He comes from a small town and a common family. Perhaps his family was even on the lower end of the socioeconomic status. But then, if you follow Jesus on Facebook or Twitter, you begin to notice that some things are happening. John the Baptist tweets that he's the Son of God in human form. That comment starts to trend. Then John baptizes Jesus one day, and there's a video of it posted on Instagram. And as you're watching that video, you can hear a voice come out of heaven that says about Jesus, this is my son and I'm really pleased with him. And suddenly that becomes the most liked video on Instagram. The next thing you know, Jesus is healing people. And by now, social media is blowing up. I mean, who is this man? Could Jesus of Nazareth really be the Messiah, the Son of God? So Jesus starts preaching, and he's saying things like, the kingdom of God is near. What does that mean, the kingdom of God is near? Then one day, people begin to read on Facebook that Jesus is going to go public. He's going to do a talk, and he's going to explain what he means by the kingdom of God, what people are like and how they act in the kingdom of God. So the crowds begin to show up in droves for this talk that Jesus is going to give. They bring their lawn chairs and their picnic baskets, and they have their coolers and their blankets. The two prevailing concerns in the crowd that day were, one, what will the kingdom of heaven really be like? And two, who will get into this kingdom? And perhaps the bigger question was this, Will I get in? Now let me remind you that ordinary people did not think they would get in. They lived in a world where the religious system was defined in a way that excluded them. They were out of their league. The only religious system they knew was a backbreaker. Do this, do that, jump through these thousand hoops, and don't forget to read the fine print. And if that's the way religion worked, what in the world would the standard be then for the Son of God? Even higher, right? The conclusion of the average person, I don't have a shot, so why even try? I mean, who would even want to try with a standard like that? So what will Jesus' first words of this first sermon be? Remember, this is the first time he's taught formally. He said a few things here, he said a few things there. He's done some amazing miracles. But now, he's going prime time. Let's read it. Matthew 5, verse 1. 
One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We'll stop there for now. There's more. We'll come back to it another time. But what we just read introduces what is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' first recorded sermon. It's the greatest sermon ever given, and it deserves that label. It's Matthew 5 through 7 in the Bible. But know this. What we're hearing from Jesus is radical stuff. It's stuff they've never heard before. It is upside down living. Now his first words were, God blessed those who are poor. The first two words out of Jesus' mouth are, God blesses. Now that gets your attention, doesn't it? That will get you to sit up, to wake up, put your phone down, because we all want to know who God blesses, right? So who does God bless? Those who are poor? I mean, this is so radical. Completely opposite of what they're used to hearing. God blesses whom? Define favor falls on whom? The bankrupt? The financially destitute? There were basically two groups of people in that day, and there weren't very many in between. There were the rich, and there were the poor. Who were the poor? Most everybody. The common people, the ordinary people, the majority. Who were the rich? The religious leaders. They were called scribes and Pharisees. They had the nice houses. They drove the nice cars. They had the vacation homes in the south. They had the fat 401ks. They also thought they were rich spiritually. And they had spiritual knowledge. They were rich in spiritual activity. They set what they considered to be the spiritual bar, and they could jump over it every time. They thought they had it all together. Let me translate that for you. They didn't need anything from Jesus. They had manufactured enough religion and righteousness on their own. And so they thought, we don't need whatever he's talking about. There was another group present that day. They were the have-nots. They were the people who knew they were not setting any righteousness records at work, at home, at the store, while they were driving in their secret moments. They knew that nobody was going to be impressed with them, morally, ethically, or spiritually. They knew they couldn't measure up to their own standard, let alone to God's standard. You want to hear something radical? Jesus called that group blessed. What? How could that be? This is completely upside down from the way things worked. Think of it this way. Um, I know a guy who invited my wife and I to go to a Colts game. And he has a suite at Lucas Oil Stadium. And when you walk into that suite, there is a spread of food and drinks. Everything imaginable 
And that's just the appetizers. The main course comes when the game starts, and you don't have to go looking for it. Someone brings it to you. There are TV monitors all over this suite, so you can watch the game, you can watch the replays. There are tables and chairs where you can sit and relax and talk and watch the game. Or if you want, you can step outside the suite, and you're in the stadium then into these soft theater seats and watch the game as it takes place live right there on the field. I can't imagine what that costs. Of course, there are front row 50-yard line seats, too. Those cost you hmm, half a year's salary, something like that. Then there are the lower-level end zone seats, and they're not cheap either. But then, way up in the corner, there's the very top row. What do we call those seats? The nosebleed seats, right? They're the cheapest seats in the house. Not really cheap, but they're the cheapest seats in the house. I had a guy offer me two tickets to an Indiana University game once, free to me. So I took one of my kids along. When we got there, these were our seats. <laughs> Top row, corner, all the way against the wall. Wow, thanks for the freebies, huh? So Jesus comes along and says, you're blessed if you're sitting in the nosebleed section, not the luxury suite. Why? Because those who are poor realize their need for God. We all need God. We just don't all realize it. The more self-sufficient we see ourselves, the less we see our need for God. Last week on Easter weekend, I mentioned that my father-in-law died a few months ago, and I first met him in 1984 when I started dating my wife. My father-in-law, by his own admission, did a lot of things in his life that he was not proud of. He, he lived with some gratty, regret. He really wasn't a religious guy, but he was also quick to admit that he had earned no merit of his own from God. The day I walked into the critical care unit of Methodist Hospital, I knew his days were numbered, and I also knew I had to know where he stood with his relationship with God. I also knew that in recent years, because he would tell me about this, he would watch on Sunday morning church services on TV, one where I knew he was clearly hearing what the Bible says about having a right relationship with God and what it means to spend eternity with God. So there's no one else in the room that day, and I just asked him, Bill, I'm wondering where you stand with your relationship with God. Do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? And his reply, his words are as clear to me today as they were the day he said them. He said, Jerry, I've not always lived a good life, and I've done a lot of wrong things, but I'm relying on what Jesus did for me. That's called being spiritually bankrupt. Each one of us has to get there in order to have a right relationship with God. Why? Well, because we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's standard to be perfect without sin, without any wrongdoing in our lives. God is holy. That means he doesn't have any wrongdoing, any sin in his life. Those who think they can earn it or already have it, those who think they have it all together spiritually, 
They don't realize their need to rely on what Jesus did for them. So Jesus sums it up in verse 3 for those who realize they are poor by saying this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, as we keep reading in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus is going to give eight statements about people that God blesses. The first statement is that God blesses the poor because they realize their need for him. And we call these eight statements the beatitudes. The word beatitude is just a Latin word and it means happy, it means fortunate, it means blessed. Let me sum up for you Jesus' teaching in these eight statements before we move on. First, Jesus says the popular idea of being blessed is to have the right circumstances. Many of us think that too, right? If you have the right circumstances or whatever it is in your life, you're blessed. But what Jesus said is God's way of being blessed is to have the right attitude. So to conclude, the degree to which I am blessed is determined not by what's around me, but rather by what's happening in me. And the first step to being blessed is to realize that you're poor because then you'll realize you need Jesus. So that's the first statement. Let's move on to the second statement, and it's this. It's, it's in Matthew 5, 4. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, at first glance, this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense either, does it? Remember, though, we're not blessed by what's happening around us. We're blessed by what's happening in us. Jesus says that we first have to realize that we're spiritually bankrupt. If you do that, we'll begin to depend on God rather than ourselves. Next, we have to mourn. We have to grieve the sin in our lives. We have to realize that our sin has offended a holy God. We have to realize how destructive sin is to our lives and to those around us. And by the way, genuine sadness or mourning leads to change, at least to repentance in our lives. What's the promise from Jesus if we go down the path of mourning? He says we'll be comforted we find out that God did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. All of our sins, all of our regrets, all of our guilt, all of our shame were put on the cross when Jesus died. And when we grieve our sin, we find out that we can have forgiveness from God. It all begins, though, not with self-sufficiency and pride. It begins with acknowledging that we are poor, spiritually bankrupt, and that we have to mourn the sin in our lives. And when we do that, it leads to blessing. Some of us may have inflated views of of ourselves this morning. We may think, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not like that person over there. I've done some good things in my life. I feel pretty good about those things. I mean, surely God will look down on me and say, man, I can't keep you out of heaven. I saw you buy some cookies from Girl Scouts once, you know. I saw you help your neighbor shovel snow this winter. So let's just do a little test this morning. We've all heard of the Ten Commandments, right? We're going to use them as our guide. I'm going to give you just five of the ten, 
And I want you to keep track of how you're doing with these five. And if you use message notes, I listed those five in your notes. There's a box on the left of each statement. You can just check it off if you think you're good to go as I come to each of these statements and describe them for you. If you don't like to use message notes, there's only five, so just keep track on your fingers to see how you're doing. Here we go. We're going to see how righteous we are this morning. The first commandment says, you must not have any other God but me. So, if you've always put God first in everything and in every area of your life, you've never put your job ahead of God, you've never put material things ahead of God, you never put money, family, pleasure, sports, or a hobby ahead of God, then count that one that you've never broken. But by the way, that would include always consulting God with every decision you've ever made in life, and you made every decision that he would want you to make. And also, if you've ever worried about anything, you really can't count this one because you're, when you're worrying, you're controlling, you're trying to control your own life, instead of let God control your life, and so it's making yourself out to be God of your life. So check the box if you're good to go on that one, okay? If you've always put God first in everything. Okay, let's move on quickly to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. If you have always been respectful and obedient of your parents every single day and hour of your life, count that one. Make sure, though, that you've included never having had a disrespectful, defiant, or unkind thought towards your parents. If you're good to go on that one, check it off. Here's the sixth one. You must not murder. Now, some of you are thinking, whew, I got one, you know. (laughs) Hold on. If we keep reading in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to find out that Jesus says, if you've ever hated someone in your heart, if you've ever failed to forgive someone, if you've become angry with someone, if you've been resentful towards someone, it's the same as killing them in your heart. We're also going to read, we can also read in the Bible that you can kill people with your words. So as long as you've never ever put somebody down, made a critical or negative statement about someone, count that one. Okay, let's jump to the eighth one. You must not steal. If you've never taken anything that belonged to someone else, never taken anything from a hotel room, (laughs) never done a personal task on company time, always returned everything you borrowed, never taken an answer from someone else's homework, never spent more than your allotted time for lunch on a lunch break at work, then give yourself credit for that one. Okay, let's skip to the 10th one, the final one. You must not covet. If you've never desired something that wasn't yours, you know what, let's just skip that one, all right? (laughs) All of us have done that. So let's quickly move on. Now, we just listed five of the 10 commandments. How are you doing? I'm O for five. Here's the point of that little exercise. We're all guilty. Romans 3.20 says it this way. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And we are incapable of doing anything on our own to make amends with our holy God. Romans 3.23 puts it this way. For everyone is sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, the Bible tells us that not just so we'll feel bad, although we are to mourn, but it also tells us that so we will realize our need 
for God. Suppose you're offered a free vacation in Hawaii, but you're told that to get there, you're on your own. You have to pay for the transportation to get to Hawaii. So to save yourself some money, you decide you're going to swim. <laughs> and so you go to California, and you start out at the coast, and you're going to swim to, say, Maui. Okay? That's about 2,500 miles. That's a long way, so let's shorten the trip. Um, we can go to the Big Island, which is, I think, about 30 miles closer than Maui. So now you're under 2,500 miles. You can't do it, can you? Now, if you board a plane in Los Angeles and you take the six-hour flight, you'll make it, but you're also admitting that you're incapable of swimming 2,500 miles in the Pacific Ocean. I'm fascinated with people who do triathlons, especially the Ironman events. For an Ironman event, the swim is 2.4 miles, the bike is 112 miles, and then when you get off the bike, you start running, and you run a marathon 26.2 miles. And I've studied some of the times of these elite Ironmaners. They are superhuman, in my opinion. So let's recruit Patrick Lang. He's from Germany, and he won the Ironman in Hawaii last year. He might have a harder time admitting he can't swim 2,500 miles, right? From Los Angeles to Hawaii, especially with the mindset of an Ironmaner. But regardless of what he thinks or how remarkable an athlete he is, he is incapable. He would fall short. He too would need to admit his need of getting on a plane or even a boat to get to Hawaii. That's what Jesus is saying about where we all need to be spiritually. We have to humbly admit that we're spiritually poor. Why? Because once we admit that, we can rely on Jesus who died for our sins as our only way to heaven. And when you do that, you have the promise of eternal life. It sounds upside down. Realize that you are spiritually poor and mourn that, but it leads to forgiveness and to freedom through your relationship with Jesus. And if you've never experienced that, and you're saying today, I get it now, you can make that decision in your heart to rely on what Jesus has done for you. Because it's not what we do, it's what He has done for us. And right now, if you want to experience that, as I close in prayer, you can do that by telling Jesus in your heart that you want to accept Him into your life, that you want to surrender your life to Him.